I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. I experienced more of attention when I was trying to lead the lineage the way my grandfather led it. Mm. For a while there, I was wearing like, you know, 19th, 20th century glasses in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I was also trying to lead it the way my remote ancestors have led it 16th century, 8th century. We have records of them and we know what they did and how much they gave and how they sacrificed. And then I rebirthed myself for the 21st century. It took a while. It took some painful um, experiences, some learning curves, David. And I gave myself the permission to to really serve the people in the 21st century. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Cammers, your host and monologist. On behalf of all of us here at Be Here Now and Dharma Moon, we sincerely hope this podcast finds you as well as can be, and we are grateful that you are joining us. Here at CSM, our guide, David Nickturn, discusses how to lead an integrated life involving spiritual practice, creative expression, and right livelihood with guests who embody and manifest these principles in their own life. And for this episode, we are very fortunate to have modern mystic, visionary author, and roaring teacher Acharya Shunya joining us. Acharya Shunya is a truth teller who facilitates authenticity, self-remembrance, ooh, let's try that again, self-remembrance, and divine feminine pathways to awakening within. The first female head of her ancient spiritual lineage from India, Acharya Shunya distills the most ancient of the non-dual Vedic, yogic, Ayurvedic teachings to their luminous essence. The result is a potent elixir for our times. With a special gift for embodied feminine knowing, Acharya Shunya dissolves the obstacles that have prevented free access to these treasures and invites everyone to the table of liberation, health, and joy. Shunya reinterprets and recontextualizes ancient teachings and divine feminine wisdom for modern times, empowering people everywhere to lead fearless, fulfilled, and enlightened lives. Acharya Shunya is the author of three best-selling books, Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom from 2017, Sovereign Self from 2020, and her newest book, Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful. In this book, Acharya Shunya honors her progressive Vedic roots while breaking the shackles of tradition to bring modern-day women an inclusive, feminist spirituality. Acharya Shunya is also the founder of the Awakened Self Foundation, a learning, empowering, and awakening platform, as well as Vedika Global, a 501c3 religious not-for-profit, both headquartered in Northern California. All right. The heart-mind connection in this episode is evident right out of the gate with Acharya and David, so I'll endeavor to keep the comments up front to a minimum so you can dive right in. That being said, we want to share with you and invite you all to an evening on the Zoom platform 
with Acharya Shudya and David entitled Beyond Boundaries. So please join us on Wednesday, April 19th, 2023 from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online evening of exploration with Shunya and David. Acharya Shunya will present the archetype of Saraswati, the Vedic goddess of light, truth, intuition, wisdom, and liberation. We'll explore how learning about this archetype can aid your spiritual path, integration of past traumas, and emotional healing. Understanding Saraswati's archetype can give students and practitioners a deeper understanding of themselves and their connection to the world around them. Following Acharya Shunya's talk, there will be a dialogue between her and David, exploring the perspectives of their respective traditions and how they intertwine and differentiate. The evening will conclude with an open Q&A session. It uh, promises to be a powerful and compelling exploration of the intersection between Buddhist and Vedic traditions. We hope to see you there. All right. How is reading that ad copy, everyone? I'm going to improvise this last little bit as the... Uh, Underscoring gets really nice and noodly with the uh, with the guitars, including um, the guitar overdubs by our friend Alex. So yeah, if you like that, head over to dharmamoon.com. We always have lots of stuff going on. Also, if you like this podcast, we would like to thank everyone at Be Here and Now for distributing and post-production. We are grateful to be a part of the Be Here and Now family and, and encourage everyone listening to head over to BeHereNowNetwork.com to check out all of the amazing podcasts there for your edification and delight. And now, on to the podcast, episode number 41 with Acharya Shudya. Thank you. So, welcome back, everybody, to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. I have a very special guest uh, today, which is this Acharya Shunya. Uh, And I think we have quite a lot of ground that we're going to be able to cover together. But first of all, I just want to welcome you and say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate having you Thank you for having me, David. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And um, we haven't met before, but we have mutual friends that are, are wonderful people. Uh, and so if it's okay with you, I'd just like to explore a little bit with you um, your very diverse background and also very deeply rooted traditional background, but also clearly that you're, uh, you know, you are meant to be born in this crazy time that we're in right now to, to kind of guide people using some traditional um, teachings uh, and bringing it into the contemporary landscape. So let me ask you first, what, what does Acharya Shunya mean? For people who Shunya don't know. is my name, which means infinity. <laughs> and Acharya is the title given to an ordained teacher, um, someone who has mastered not only the practices, but also the scriptures of a given lineage. And I am the Acharya of my lineage the first female Acharya and the first to teach in the West. Um, which is an incredible um, hot seat to sit in, I would imagine, at times. <laughs> it's a hot seat, but I navigate it by just being me. Ah, that okay. Helps. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hot seat, but I navigate it by just being me. That's going to be a quote we'll pull from this for everybody's <laughs> benefit. Um, yeah, so, of course, the Acharya is... Um, you know, a master teacher. And, uh, you, you know, in our Buddhist perspective, Shunya has uh, probably translated two different ways. One would be infinite potential and the other would be emptiness. Is there any connotation of emptiness in there as well? Um, completely, because that ultimate reality, which uh, in the Vedic tradition is known as Brahman and in the Buddhist tradition is known as Shunyata, is beyond form. It transcends form it transcends anything that is manifest because it is the holder of that reality. And that's that's why that emptiness is pregnant and potent with possibility. But because I'm a Vedic teacher, I gave you the more a Vedic explanation of it. But absolutely, from time to time, it really helps to know that I embody that divine emptiness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, something that, you know, sometimes people in the West have a little challenged wrapping their minds around the notion that 
something that is not to be grasped by the conceptual mind also has a vast expanse and opportunity to manifest anything. Um, so uh, you know, my Chinese, one of my Chinese teachers uh, expressed it as uh, they, they, their uh, translation is vast expanse. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. So emptiness, don't you think, sometimes gives people the wrong idea, right? Yeah, I think that's why we have like words like shunya, shunyata, dharma, even karma. It takes a lifetime to understand the real connotation of these words. Uh, that word packs so many meanings. And then based on our consciousness, we are able to understand the depth of that word and that emptiness that the Buddha talked about and the emptiness that the Upanishads or the ancient Vedic tradition talked about where they said, neti, 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 that that ultimate truth is not this, not this, not this, not this. There was this desire to transcend form into formlessness, transcend the sensory understanding of world into a transsensory understanding. And for anything to, to, to manifest itself, uh, shunyata or emptiness is a precondition. In fact, there is an ancient uh, verse which says, and I'm going to chant some Sanskrit, but I'll explain it uh, for those who are unfamiliar with this. But it says, prathamam shunyata bodhim. Dvitiyam bija sangraha. So first comes emptiness. Only then in that emptiness, which is potent from divinity and spiritual consciousness, comes the seed. And then that seed becomes sound and that sound becomes form. So it goes on like that. And to understand shunyata and to give shunyata the status that the Buddha did is a really... Um, is really representative of beginning with beginning with consciousness mm -hmm. and then moving on to form, really. And I'm very proud to be bearing this name. I had a sister. She's no more, but she was elder to me. And my guru, my grandfather, who was also my grandfather, gave her the name, spiritual name Purna, which means fullness. <laughs> and he gave me the name Shunya, emptiness. Then my father came along and gave us school names because you don't use spiritual names for your worldly vocations. And my sister's name was Prachi, which means the Eastern direction. And interestingly, he gave me the name Pratichi, which means the Western direction. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am teaching the true teaching essence of Shunya, being Shunya in the West. Ah, perfect. Um, you were raised in India then? Yes. And and when did you come to, to the United States? I must, um, I don't remember the exact age, but I think I was 30 or 31 when I first arrived Yeah. with my partner. And uh, all I knew was that I have to just be myself and represent my lineage. Yeah. And slowly it happened. That's quite a dynamic duo, uh, representing a lineage and also being yourself. I, I've I've um, felt the tension between those two more than once. Um, is, is it ever a feeling that that is a process of trying to resolve what those two things mean together? I experienced more of a tension when I was trying to lead the lineage the way my grandfather led it. Mm. For a while there, I was wearing like, you know, 19th, 20th century glasses and the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I was also trying to lead it the way my remote ancestors have led it 16th century, 8th century. We have records of them and we know what they did and how much they gave and how they sacrificed. And then I rebirthed myself for the 21st century. It took a while. It took some painful um, experiences, some learning curves, David. And I gave myself the permission to, to really serve the people in the 21st century. So I have removed 
some of the structuring around it. And then I had guilt in the beginning, like, am I a mm. worthy Acharya? Can I change even one thing? Mm. <laughs> and then I went into, I, of course, I can change everything as long as I keep the essence of the light, the essence of the Vidya, the knowledge, pristine. But then how I how I show up for it and how I do an Instagram on live wearing my jeans and kurta or, you know, what do I do with my body being to be part of the 21st century fabric was important. And I'm, and I'm still figuring it out. I'm not fully there, but the process of greater comfort and ease has begun. Uh, and I, I won't blame my lineage for it because for so long, oral lineages in Hinduism, Buddhism have really held on to the form as well as the spirit to maintain the sanctity. Sure. And then I'm in 21st century California. I'm a married woman. I'm a twice married woman. I'm I'm a mother. I'm a, I teach in universities as much as in satsangs. Who am I? <laughs> and I have to go back to the emptiness of rebirthing myself. How eloquently stated, and I think many people will resonate with this because people are looking for something with some roots. Uh, you know, you know, in in that movie Avatar, the the trees and the roots are just floating in the air. That's what that's what uh, Western culture sort of feels like sometimes. There's no roots in the ground, and so people are looking elsewhere for the roots in the ground, uh, but then they they can't identify with the culture that that uh, was the container for it at that time. So particularly like in our sangha, Dharma Moon uh, sangha, um, many of the um, younger women are looking for. Uh, which is why I think this conversation could be so so vital for right now. How do they tap into the you know traditional Buddhist wisdom, but not import the cultural envelope of of exactly what you're talking about, the patriarchal context of it, um, which is disempowering to women. And there's no two ways about it. You can't you can you can fudge it. You can sort of say, oh, but there were these great you know Padmasambhava had these great consorts and whatever. There's no way not to acknowledge the fact that going backwards that um, the cultural envelope is going to be completely different than what it's going to be going forwards. And that's just the way and, it is. And then when I, and then when I, I agree. And then when I explore how my grandfather led his Sangha versus how Shankaracharya led his Sangha, there's already a difference in culture from right. 8th century to the 19th century. And sure. then even prior to that, my great grandfather's Sangha was even different from my grandfather's. Sure. And then when we go back to the Acharya Samhita, when we go back to the scriptures that inform Acharyas to be Acharyas, we come across this purport that uh, you must address the sensibility of the era in which you are born. Like I, we have the concept of yugas or epochs in which consciousness is dark or light filled or in between or crazy, make crazy like mm -hmm. in Kali Yuga. And uh, an Acharya, I mean, I was the, our ancient Rishis, Vashishta was born in Satyuga, and um, my and I am born in Kali Yuga, and I'm stained by it. You can't enter a dark room full of coal and tar and not be and your white clothes and your you know your purpose, your being is it, it can't be that you come out of it untainted and untouched. I'm sure you feel the same, David. So, you know, it comes on to you and there's so much cleansing that we teachers have to do constantly to come back to center and be a teacher. That's why to give ourselves the freedom to culturally um, reinvent ourselves. Mm. While, as you said in the beginning, respecting the roots, Mm -hmm. We don't want them to completely disappear, otherwise they become, in your beautiful words, floating mm -hmm. people. We don't want that. We want to be informed by our roots, but we should not put a limit to where we are growing. Yeah. I'm not going to do that anymore. Kabat, um, that is so awesome. <laughs> really um, so well stated. And I, 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 I know from my experience of, working with these things that there's a tremendous resonating pool of recipients for this kind of uh, approach. Um, because on the one extreme, you have the people who have just are making up a lot of stuff, you know, and kind of 
uh, you know, loosely called new age kind of a, approach. And the other you have people who are rigidly holding on to, you know, extant traditions that don't, the form of which is no longer going to really speak to people. So it's, um, it's an honor uh, to, to share this with you. It really is. It feels, it feels very auspicious and good. Um, can you, can you, uh, you know, educate some of us a little, like, what are the Vedas? You know, you hear about the, the, the Vedas and um, you're a Vedic scholar. You're, you're from the Vedic tradition. Could you give somebody out there a, a sort of short definition of what that, that, what, what they are, where they come from, et cetera, et cetera. The Veda comes from the root word vid, V-I-D, vid. And vid means to be aware, to come into the knowing, to be enlightened and not be without light. And so Veda was a collective oral tradition of wisdom that was universal. It precedes all religions that come from India, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism. It definitely informed them to a greater or lesser degree. Mm -hmm. um, some even had to speak up beyond the Veda, but the Veda was definitely the first light in the eyes of ancient seers, which happily were not just men known as rishis, but women too, known as rishikas. The Vedas are the first holy uh, compendium of knowledge known to humankind, which have been authored by women seers too. So that speaks for the vibration that the Veda uh, contained. It was inclusive. It was respectful of all gender, genders and types of people. And it, um, uh, the beginning part of the Veda known as the Samhita teaches us about Dharma. And the later part of the Vedas known as Upanishads or Vedanta teaches about um, the self, the universal self. And our opportunity to self-realize. So the latter part is more philosophical and mm -hmm. uh, takes us to an, in an inner quest. And the beginning part takes us towards living in harmony with the rest of creation, other human beings, other beings, and our non-sentient planet too, and our opportunity to serve and rise in our consciousness. Uh, different versions of the Vedas then became coded into the religions and um, the current day Hinduism, while it holds the Veda in its belly and that informs its um, vision of inclusivity in terms of God consciousness, but the lot of rituals and even the deity worship that is popular in the current Hinduism is not present in the Veda. Uh -huh. It was more of a speculative, contemplative, meditative uh -huh. and a lived tradition, a lifestyle of living as a conscious being. Awesome. That is, that is so, that will be so helpful. That's helpful to me and will be helpful to, to a lot of people to, to get that clear uh, kind of iteration of it. And how far back are we going in the scale of human history when, and, and were they spontaneously arising? Was this something that just emanated from human life and society? Or was there a, some key person who kind of iterated it first and then, and, and it took hold? What, what's the what's the root that way? I think what came prior to the Veda was yoga. Mm -hmm. And yoga was a way of life of um of of elevating our own consciousness. Yeah. Like, you know, towards the bodhisattvas in Buddhism, we have that. Mm -hmm. So that imperative, known by different names, mm -hmm. uh, was pre-existent in India. And the India I'm talking about included Afghanistan. It included present-day Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, all of that, and maybe parts of China, I don't know. But uh, there was this impetus to know. And so um, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were these yogis and yoginis who knew. And they were known as, the rishis were known as mantra drishta. They saw in their inner eye the mantra the knowledge. Mm -hmm. So it was channeled knowledge. Ah. And, um, and, and that is why the rishis are not known as authors of the Veda, mm -hmm. but seers of the Veda. They have seen it. Uh, they've seen a higher reality. For example, when the Veda declared Vasudeva Kutumbakam, the world is one family. Uh, this is way before airplanes and knowing that there were more countries and other things. Mm -hmm. They declared the world is one family. 
they knew from an inner eye that there were people who were diverse in how they looked or how they prayed or how they mated, but we are one. And this knowledge was seen through the inner eye. And their utterances were initially transmitted verbally from Anur to the one who wants to learn about it, the learner, the master, the disciple. And at some point, they became uh, written, compiled on palm leaves, then printed on books, then translated in different languages. And today you can find them with a click online and download <laughs> them from anywhere. But they are hard to interpret because the Sanskrit is, before Sanskrit was systematized, it's like the ancient Sanskrit, ancient language. It requires then scholars to break apart every word, understand it and understand the essence of it. Are we going back 5,000 years, more? Oh, yeah. We're probably going eight to 10,000 years. Eight to 10, 000, um, because, and this is based on paleontological, archaeological, and linguistic evidence. We're definitely going back that old. And that's a little mind-boggling for Westerners sometimes to think that there could be civilizations that go that far back, which is very different from the Eurocentric historical timeline. Sure. Sure. But um, there were cultures in India, Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, China that go back. And I think it, the the uh, South American shamans also go back eight, ten thousand years. And then some, sometimes they talk about 50,000 years. They do. They yeah. do. So, uh, you know, obviously it's prehistoric in, in the sense of not having written documentation about it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, um, this is um, the the thing that it makes me think of right away is like, you know, Buddhism, as you know, is very lineage oriented in its in its purest form. You know, there's teachers and students just the way you've been talking about going back. In in uh, uh, my teacher was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was Kagyu uh, lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. We trace the lineage back to about 800 AD, of course, back to Buddha, but in terms of the uh, iteration. Of course, it emanates from India and a, a great uh, uh, yogi named Tilopa, um, who, who is uh, a number of people lay claim to Tilopa as a source code. And in the tradition, it says, oh, well, you need to have a teacher and to, to practice in the Vajrayana tradition in particular. The, the teacher-disciple relationship is extremely important. Um, and then you go back, teacher, 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 you get back to Tilopa, <laughs> <laughs> and he's a crazy yogi, uh, Mahasiddha type of character who supposedly had spontaneous realization, you know, from from um, Sambhogakaya realm. And and um, so it seems that this, when you were saying that the, the rishis channeled this information, um, that that seems to be a a through line of um, the, the awakened information being already embedded and accessible to anybody. Uh, whether they have a teacher or not, is that wouldn't that be sort of implied in that? It's implied in that, but these teachers also had teachers. It is said because um, in the Satyuga or in the ega, the epoch of light, when the Vedas were first received by human uh, seers in their mind, in their inner eye, uh, the distinction between the human loka and the godly loka and the divya loka was not there like we could uh, we could transport from one realm to another and have these common stories mm -hmm, where humans mm -hmm. beasts and gods and goddesses intervened and so the human um, the veda was said to be with brahma and then the, was then taught to different godly figures like Daksha Prajapati, etc which were intervening mid figures and then it was taught to the humans so there was never a recognition. Okay, let me backtrack. If there is ever a recognition of a spontaneous awakening, then it is deduced by the Vedic tradition, just to be clear, that this person must have received teachings in a previous lifetime or two. And as a result, they are now ready. Yeah. So there is never a sidestepping of being a qualified yeah. Um person who is changing their consciousness because right. consciousness to begin with is so greedy and so muddy 
And and I and to be truthful, David, when I wake up, I wake up very early and I come sit in front of my altar of my guru and the the gods that you know I, I'm used to connecting with. And and I light a lamp and for a while there, my mind's so busy. Cha 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 cha. And then after a while it quietens down and then it goes inwards. And then I receive something. And it takes a while, even for an advanced practitioner like me. Mm. How can an ordinary person have a spontaneous um awakening? And if they do, then the Veda says, let's take them seriously. If they are really speaking the truth for the benefit of all beings, then um, they are, um, they have done their work. And that is why the Buddha, who didn't have a specific teacher to teach him to be the Buddha, but was a self-enlightened one, was then uh, included into the Hindu pantheon of gods. He's known as an avatar now for us. But we recognize him as a ready soul. And that he finished his work as a prince and then he closed his eyes to open them for the final time for the rest of us. So we feel like his preparation was happening. And for a young prince to have such mature insights, <laughs> it's a, this is not an ordinary prince having a wow yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah. This, 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 so that's... That's our worldview. It may not be a perfect worldview, but we recognize a journey somewhere along the way. Uh, my, my son, Ethan, who's also a Dharma teacher, um, says that by today's standards, if somebody looked at the story of Buddha and even modern psychiatrists, like somebody like Mark Epstein or so, would say, well, he was kind of a deadbeat dad, wasn't he? He just slipped out the back <laughs> on his family. <laughs> Yeah, but they don't understand the whole concept of personal sacrifice for greater good. People don't, an ordinary Western mind doesn't understand that. (laughs) Yeah, so um, you are, um, you know, you, you tune your radio to certain frequencies as I talk to different people. It seems almost like everybody has a channel on a on a some kind of radio that's communicating uh, a specific kind of messaging or or, or a, a, um, a particular message. So, in, in in the exposure I had to, I listened to your podcast, which I, I I'm gonna really recommend. And maybe you'll tell me different, but um, as a sort of somebody wanted to get a, an introduction, um, the roar like a goddess episode from your shadow to self podcast. I listened to it last night, and it seemed seminal in terms of like just this. this I'm, I felt like I'm getting the essence of your current uh, message, and it also referred to your to your book of the same name, uh, which is came out in September, maybe or so. Yes. So, um, yeah. so it's still fresh off the press for everybody, and it seems to have that quality of, um, yeah, this is what I want to say right now, and I, I'm I'm getting up on the platform, and I'm I'm, I'm you know proclaiming this so i wanted to invite you to like talk a little bit about roar how does a goddess roar (laughs) can you show us yeah yeah how does a goddess roar you know david i'm gonna step back and tell you that i grew up in goddess stories from india Mm -hmm. the vedas which you've already introduced were uh, were inclusive of the divine masculine the divine fem- the divine formless mm-hmm. transcendent the divine masculine divine feminine and the divine in between so we right. have the concept of Ardhanadeshwara, half masculine, half feminine God, which is an mm-hmm. ultimate God. Yeah. So that was really beautiful. And growing up on goddess stories, I and then when I went into the scriptures to myself, once I became uh, able to go into the scriptures, I realized that the goddess Gudurga uh, and others, when they went to battle, they'd often have a glass of wine with them. And then between sips of wine, they would make these roaring sounds because they because the Durga rides a lion or a big cat like a tiger and it is said that the animal that the goddess rides on or it could be a bird at times like Saraswati rides a swan they are not beasts or burdens they are really continuation of the goddess deity you know Mm -hmm. of the deity and sometimes when she was like really in her zone Durga would you know make these sounds like Mm. 
I loved it. And then my mother would make them for me. And and it would just like uh, ignite me with Shakti. And uh, and that's why I brought in the roar of the goddess. Like the goddess is not just making polite conversation. (laughs) She's roaring. (laughs) And then, of course, I went on to connect it, which happened in my life. And we talked a little bit about it, finding your own voice, like even as an Acharya. I had to find my own voice as um, as a 21st century uh, feminine citizen of planet Earth where there is still hostility towards my gender mm. and towards hostility towards a lot of people with non-binary fluid genders for whom I feel this intense pain. Mm. I felt like roaring could be compared to owning that voice and refusing to change it or soften it or change its timber or quality or make it seductive or manipulative or cute or nice or polite or, you know, in any way different from what you really wanted to sound like today in this moment. And um, and that began the journey of Roar Like a Goddess. And I had worshipped goddesses as a, as a, as a girl who had been born in a Vedic Hindu family, we have a temple in our ancient home of the goddess. And so I grew up with the goddess and worshipping her and making garlands for her and all of that. But now in Through the Book, I wanted to bring the goddesses down a few notches. Mm. And I wanted to elevate myself and my kind a few notches up so we could have a union. So I guess there was that aspiration to walk and talk and mate like a goddess for myself. I didn't want to just be a worshiper. Yeah. And 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 so that is how this book was born. And right until I started writing it, I had no plans for it. You know, you can plan a book and you can plan what's gonna happen. And on a specific day during a goddess festival, I had something that happens to the Vedic people. Like it just like I have to write this. And I started writing it, and in four months, I completed the manuscript. The publishers loved it as it is, and it's making waves. Uh, and, and it's on Sounds True. Is that is that the publisher? Yeah, it's it's published by Sounds True, though it's selling everywhere as an audiobook and as a yeah. regular book. And did you read the audiobook yourself? Yes, I did. <laughs> I'm so glad you did that because that's one of my pet peeves these days: is having somebody else read the audiobook and then they mispronounce some of the words, and you don't get the it's like a way to meet the author, you know? That's what happened the first time. I mean, um, I was so disappointed with the final product. So then I made a deal with my publisher. Either I read it, my Indian accent and all, or there's no audiobook. <laughs> there you go. Well, the Indian accent is, is you know, gives it um, as a, as a, the other half of my life being in the entertainment world, it's, that's what makes it a hit. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. That's like, that's you know, the spice, you know. That that yeah. That, yeah. I, I think just meeting the author, no matter what accent, Absolutely. Indian, European, Native that's American, right. just being yourself and saying it made a difference. And then when I was recording it, I was crying and and being fierce at the same time. So that was amazing. <laughs> crying and being fierce at the same time. I know yeah. Mike Michael Cameras who who edits the these podcasts and will give us the intro and the outro. I know he'll grab that line. I was crying and being fierce at the same time. <laughs> That's a real warrior right there. Yeah. That's a real warrior right there. What something I um maybe you'll enjoy hearing about is that as a modern acharya or as an as an old as an an acharya of an ancient tradition in the modern times, I coined a term for myself. And it's called enlightened vulnerability mm-hmm. because I, 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 I can't do anything about being enlightened. Like when I'm speaking enlightened, I'm speaking in more, nor, more ordinary terms of having the light, having mm-hmm. the wisdom, mm-hmm. having the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to own my vulnerability and it may not, I don't know who else uses this term, but I like, I like going by it. It just helps me. Um, because I didn't have any male teachers ever show any vulnerability. 
ever. Wow. Yeah. That is so deep. Yeah. Why didn't they? It's the masculine way of being powerful. They don't know this, but I mean, look, as you've been studying Buddhism and me, the Vedas, we have become more powerful. We don't cry over spoiled milk that much. So we are less vulnerable. <laughs> You'll agree. I can take big hits and I'll be kind of fine. I had a huge following on Facebook and it was hacked and we lost the Facebook. And a few days later, somebody, I was in India and somebody asked me, hey, I can't find your Facebook. I said, oh yeah, it was hacked. And they're like, we've not noticed a single brow of discomfort on your face. And I'm like, it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so that you know that enlightenment happens. Well, that's the fierce. That's the fierce part, right? That's the fierce part, but yeah. but we're still human. Yeah. And uh, but my but my ancestors never showed a single emotion. All my scriptures don't show vulnerability. My entire tradition does not show vulnerability. And here I was feeling vulnerable, and as a result, thinking there's something seriously wrong with me. And my guru chose a wrong acharya. Oh, mm -hmm. but uh, gradually I realized that that's why he chose me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least the way I studied the, um, in, in Buddhist Tantra, the feminine principles are extremely important. Um, and, you know, I've even resonated with something you said about the non-binary because mm -hmm. the imagery at that level is non-binary or it's co-binary or however you want to talk about it, integrated binary. And, um, there's um, a friend of some friends of mine out in LA who's sort of a very well-known um, non-binary uh, thought leader. And I, I wanted to talk to them and say, you know, have you explored this aspect of the sort of cosmic traditions in which these representations are sort of intermingling in very um, um, unique ways compared to like how a Western person would think about uh, gender already. But it never came all the way down to the level of manifesting so that it's true that the, you know, some of these great um, uh, Tibetan Buddhist masters, you look at their face and it's got equal feminine and masculine energetic in it. And they're, in some cases, they're celibates, so they're not really playing in that swimming pool at all. But um, it is, you know, there is a kind of um, bias at the, at the earth level towards the masculine um, container, and it's outdated. And it's, it's, it can't, it can't survive that way. That's just my personal feeling about it. And um, people have to be kind of um, curious about it to begin with, which there's a lot, that's a great part of what's going on now. There's a lot of curiosity that's being uh, generated. Um, but, you know, my notion of masculine, just put it on the record, is it's not about showing a stiff upper, you know, there's a concept even in European culture of a gentleman or somebody who's a gentle person and uh, who has uh, a strong sympathy or empathy for other people. Um, uh, you know, so I think we might be talking about the toxic as aspect of masculinity, would you, would you say? Perhaps, but there is also this, um, this norm in the Vedic tradition, especially in the tradition of Jnana Yoga, the path of knowledge, mm. where it's a, bit of, it's a bit more heady than heartfelt. Mm-hmm. It's a bit more using our own discernment, using our own right. um, ability to see through things, dissect them, lay them apart. And as a, as a result, there is the vulnerability kind of dries up in the process. And I have to say that the enlightened part of it just grows and grows and grows. But um, if there was vulnerability, it was handled through meditation or prayer or maybe right. weeping Weeping in front of your deity mm -hmm. is totally okay. Right. And weeping in front of your guru is okay, but not uh. generally being vulnerable. Whereas I, I kind of hung out my, I'm like, I'm enlightened, but I'm vulnerable. Here you go. <laughs> I just like <laughs> I changed that. I flipped that. Yeah. Oh. Um, and um, and maybe you know, because I'm a woman, I, if there had been more women along the way, yeah, there would yeah. have been. This would have happened sooner. I think but, you're right. Um, yeah. It's going to change now in my lineage. Yeah. I'm enlightened, but I'm vulnerable. Is like um, you know, as somebody who's grown up in the 
music business and the record business. I say it's a hit. <laughs> Thank you so much. I can't wait to I can't wait to engage with you as an artist. You're yeah. so much fun already. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it uh you know the message the way you're framing it, it is exactly what I see coming through so many portals right now. There's a certain amount of, you know, wrangling of it and trying to juggle who's doing what to who kind of in historical blame and stuff. But I think if you look ahead with the with the eye of you know um, um, you know the wisdom eye, it can't go any other way. It can't. It can't. It, it, it's, yeah. it's it's already happened on some level of reality. This is where we're going, and so it's great to be in a sangha or a learning group where people can uh, experiment with with forms that represent what you're talking about. Um, and that word experiment itself was unknown in an ancient tradition that has figured itself out. You know, the older the tradition, the less the experiment. But um, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, we 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 have a process of teaching. We have a process of knowing where where an aspirant is in their consciousness. It is so held the process. So, because we've had thousands of years of looking at the same thing, looking at the same journey. It's a science of self-realization. It is not just mm -hmm. even it's anything else now. Mm -hmm. But yet when we bring when we bring these ancient traditions out of their natural ecology, out of their mm -hmm. natural climate, and we are taking, talking to 21st century people, not just Westerners, but even Indians sure. who are distracted by movies and cricket and you know whatnot and material endeavors we have to then be able to experiment otherwise we lose the entire tradition you know that in india very few people understand the deeper teachings of the veda they don't mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. like it's like it's like 0.1 percent right and um, these teachings are getting lost and they're being replaced by the new age version of Hinduism and the new breed of pop gurus and all of that, which is, mm -hmm. which is its own phenomena for better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, relative to what you just said, one thing that happened to me kind of fairly accidentally is I ended up teaching Buddhism in Japan quite a lot. So before the pandemic, I was going to Japan five times a year. And we, we actually have a school there called True Nature. Uh, that's a, you know, a, a meditation Buddhist Dharma school that kind of grew up and, and evolved. And every time I teach there, I just start by apologizing. I say, I'm so sorry that you need a Jewish kid from New York to come to Japan and talk about Buddhism. Um, but but it, there's something about it where it's going around 360 degrees and has meaning again. Because nobody practices meditation in Japan. It's in, in fact, they've had trouble with meditation in Japan. Um, yeah. So then similarly, the other story was Krishnadas was on, I think maybe the Ganges River or some river in India. And he, um, he sees a, a boat paddling towards him and they have a boombox on the boat. And they're playing, you know, chanting music and stuff like that. And they're kind of accelerating, coming towards him. And as they get closer, he realizes they're playing his music. <laughs> so there is a kind of um, 360. Uh, but I could, I could say, like, in relation to Buddhism in Japan, I call it a post-Buddhist culture. The footprint is there in the society and the culture and the way people treat each other and the sense of decorum and kind of general wakefulness around food and, 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 you know, exchanging things. Um, so these things sometimes like maybe that's true in India too, that there's a footprint, you know, a post impression of these deep teachings having been there. Would you say that's, that's true? That's so well said. That's so well said. And yeah, we, uh, and, and, and this tradition has this knowledge tradition, this Veda has been such a, it's in the DNA of the people in India, but but the DNA, you know, if you don't, if you don't exercise that DNA slowly, that DNA memory fades, and and that's what's happening. And in this day and age of YouTube and technology, 
and just like the loudest voices and the and the voices that can put more money behind being heard and seen they are taking over so this is not just about india it's a worldwide phenomena but i'm remembering what swami paramahansa yogananda has observed that a lot of the spiritual people souls who once were in india taking the torch forward have been now born in the west yeah. and all a lot of the westerners who were not fulfilled at the time of their death <laughs> materially have been born in india so there is a big material boom in india there is a when i go to india i feel poor materially because <laughs> everybody seems to be walking around with good i mean i don't know yeah. coach handbags and gucci shoes and yeah. and that's not the, that's not my tribe at all in yeah, america yeah. Yeah, like that's funny. Around with the same shawl, well washed and well worn, because it carries a meditative shakti within, right. you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I I feel like um, where there's been a little bit of a, it's it's good. I mean, India was too too materially suppressed, so it's coming mm-hmm. up in its prosperity consciousness, and America is coming up. Parts of America are coming up in their spiritual consciousness. and so i think there is going to be a balance yeah. at some point yeah we have to go see the gucci lama <laughs> <laughs> that's a good word <laughs> <laughs> um we had once we were in mexico and there was a gucci shaman there they were at a hotel they were having a sh- uh, you know a, a sweat lodge and she was wearing gucci <laughs> so um <clears throat> you know the the masculine and feminine uh are uh, my, my take on it's i tend to like to reduce i'm lazy so i like to reduce things to very simple paradigms uh, is that the two big shifts are in the racial uh dimension and the gender dimension i know that sounds like idiot simple uh but that's what's reorchestrating and um so in in these systems as you mentioned there is a notion of uh, there's a unbaked unformed which we would call dharmakaya you know the kind of a uh, realm that's beyond distinctions and beyond concept then it it sort of trickles down to what we in in the buddhist tradition called the sambhogakaya which is the uh more the realm of representation but at the energetic level and emotions and you know um uh wisdom energies that are not not completely corporal um the deities you know um and and then it man comes down to the nirmanakaya or the level of you know complete physical human level of manifestation and, and and really the job is to achieve alignment of those three realms as far as i'm concerned that's if it doesn't come all the way down to nirmanakaya level then you know uh, i know people like this they're 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 extremely invested in the spiritual uh, equations but you look at their earthly existence and it's not really that synchronized you know and it doesn't it doesn't reflect that level of wisdom so um at the sambhogakaya level you do have the masculine and feminine beginning to represent as sort of more abstract concepts so are you at home with using some of that to try to figure out who the heck we are in terms of our now manifesting on earth level of gender i mean do you do you see people as manifesting both genders uh, both types of wisdom both types of energy oh um, yeah. yeah the the vedic wisdom is Uh, is the the latter part of the way that the upanishadic wisdom is about the non-dual consciousness that transcends gender and form it's boundless nameless and indifferentiated consciousness and that is the goal but when we come into form uh, we have the concept of that same consciousness becoming coming into a deity as ishvara we call that ultimate deity as ishvara and then ishvara can take many forms as ganesha lakshmi saraswati and these gods and goddesses are cosmic housekeepers some housekeep wisdom some housekeep the removal of obstacles some housekeep um, we have vedic gods like indra maruts are the keeper of storms and rains so there is this um deity realm and under that oh, and in the deity realm itself in ishvara realm itself 
Ishwara is kind of beyond gender, but then we see masculine and feminine and mm. mixed gender deities and, and deities that also transcend different, they are, they show diversity of form. We see trees as deity, we see beasts as deity, birds as deity, and anthropomorphic versions of male, feminine gods as deity. And then we have, so we also have a universe that is um, differentiated based upon gender and, and function, but then the peak of it is the realization that all of it can be transcended and we come into the realm of the self, the individual self and the universal self as one. Yeah. Some people remain, uh, our religions remain at that realm of gods and goddesses, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. the Vedas leap from there to beyond. And also from there down, right? To, and from to... there down. Right. They show a unity and integration, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, which is very wholesome. And it gives everybody mm-hmm. a starting point based on where, where they are willing to connect with a greater reality in form or beyond form. So I have a, I, they, my nickname is Nudgy because I nudge people. I don't know if you know what that means, but I kind of like bug people to like, oh, well, what about this? What about that? You know, thing. Uh, I just had an idea for a book for you. Yeah. <laughs> Write a book for men. Huh. And what would you like to hear as a man? No, I don't want to hear. I want I want to hear what you want to say. Oh, I see. Well, well in other words, directly addressing men. Talk to men. Talk to men. Talk to yeah. men and say, here's some things that you might want to become aware of or think about a different way or um That's a brilliant idea. Thank you. It, it's the flash, you know, the flash bulb that goes on in the mind. Yeah, yeah, those flashes. That's that's significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it also, again, coming from the record business, I think it would be a hit. Because nobody de- nobody's done that. I don't that. think anybody's done it. You've no. just given me an original idea. Yeah. And as I said, podcast. Thank you. as I say to all my people, I, I just get my usual 85% if that's okay. <laughs> Your cut is due. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody's exactly done that. And um, it would be so kind and, and so stern at the same time. You know, it'd be gentle and fierce at the same time. Men are, you know, um, men are a little thick. I, I'm sure I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir on this point. So, um, you know, we have to hear things three or four times uh, before we kind of, oh, yeah, you know, she just said something there. Um, so, but, you know, maybe people are going, I, well, you can't talk to those people because they're so thick, you know. So it, it could be a little bit like talking maybe to how you train an animal. <laughs> <laughs> you have to repeat and and be kind of gentle but precise. It's just an idea. Um, I think if I touch my, I I think that's this is an adventure for me. This is going to be an experiment to for my author to to touch the inner woman who's enlightened and vulnerable, and then come from there. And I wonder what she will reveal. But it's really exciting to think about it. Just it's empowering to have that dialogue because I'm having this dialogue with my fellow women. But what if I had it directly with the men in my life, the men who have been thick and the men who've not been thick? And 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 what it does for us and what we want. I'm gonna think about it. Thank you, David. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know. Short time, uh, there's an old bluegrass uh, song, Short Life of Trouble, you know, uh, and probably everybody refers to the finiteness of of our time. And I'm particularly aware of it because, you know, I'm really going on to the back nine, as we would say in golf course, you know. Um, so I'm thinking about legacy a lot these days. Um, you know, I'm thinking more about the people who come after me than I'm thinking about what my role is at this point, you know, per- personally, uh, or what I could accumulate. So, um, you know, what would you like your legacy to be as you as you begin to look forward? And um, 
you know, I, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine the other day. I said, he was looking for his next creative project. I said, well, you have a four-year-old son. Imagine he's 40 and he's reading your book or watching your television show and saying, I'm proud of my dad there, you know, yeah. what would that be? And, and, you know, I'm, I'm throwing it up there for anything that comes spontaneously to mind. And you certainly have put a lot of it on the table already. Um, but anything fresh? Yeah. I think my legacy now, uh, at one time, if you had asked me this 10 years ago, I would have talked about taking the light of Vedic knowledge forward and all of that. And now I'm going to say that my, my legacy is to be true to yourself. I want to teach my readers and my students to be true to themselves and to, and to spend some part of their life in a quest for who they are. And I hope that my, teach, my books, my teachings, my spoken words assist them in that quest. I'm not the one to give them answers. Mm -hmm. But I think anybody who who's one true to themselves, so that makes their daily life better. Mm. And then they imbibe upon a quest with, and whether they choose the path of yoga or whatever, Veda, Buddhism, doesn't matter. Like just mm -hmm. go on a quest, be true on that quest and it's going to lead you somewhere. This human life is um, really an opportunity for that greater quest. So let's get that going. Yeah. And until we learn to be authentic and true to ourselves, we're so, the world has um, power over us. Mm. And it and it squeezes us and, and, and it changes us and we become shadowy versions of ourselves. Mm. So be authentic and bold um, and own up to whatever you're lacking and don't try and fill it up. Just be that person, broken, damaged, but whole. <laughs> and then move forward on that greater quest. Who are you? Where were you before you were this person? Mm. And where are you going to go? Try and find those answers while you're living. I want to be a teacher that inspires those contemplations. Wow. Yeah, there's a, there's a gravity to this moment between me and you. Hmm. Well, and sharing it with who knows who's out there. Yeah. It's been a miracle who's been out there so far. You just don't know. And, you know, I heard this story about the Dalai Lama went to Hawaii once. And on another island, there was one Buddhist. And he said, we're going there. So you don't know who, you know, who's out there. I, you know, believe strongly in this principle of tendril, which is the Tibetan word for, um, I think for nidana, really, for auspicious coincidence. Mm -hmm. So that you play, my friend calls it playing the melody of circumstance. You go along with it. You go along yeah. with it. So, um, and in, in these last several years with Dharma Moon, it's been all about that. It's been nothing but tendril the whole way. Um, I think the more you tune into tendril, the louder your teacher's voices get in your head and heart. And the more people you meet and, and have just kind of really um, rich exchanges. So um, I'm completely feel blessed to have met you and, and had this exchange and to share it with everybody out there. Um, I'm going to just kind of encourage them to track you down and, and uh, you know, um, sit, at your, sit at your feet and, and learn from you. And, um, you know, if we can help in that in any way, I know there's all kinds of things cooking these days in terms of collaboration and, and so forth. So uh, I just throw that into the wind like, like the shaman, throw those cocoa leaves up in the, into the air. And um, we will leave on our chat how people can find you and so forth and and uh, we'll we'll follow through with that properly but thank you so much for joining the thank you so much david podcast. this was a very profound conversation because of the energy you brought into it uh, you are my dharma brother thank you so much 
All right, everyone, thank you for listening to episode number 41 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast featuring Acharya Shunya. We would like to remind you again that we have an amazing event coming up with Acharya Shunya and David on April 19th, and you can head over to dharmamoon.com to sign up for that. We would also like to encourage everyone to head over to beherenownetwork.com to check out more amazing podcast content from the Be Here Now Network. If you like our podcast, we encourage you to give it a like, give it a share, tell your friends, give us five stars on whatever platform you're listening on so that we can continue to spread the good word of creativity, spirituality, and right livelihood. We hope that this podcast is a benefit to you in your journey. And again, we thank you for listening. Thank you, everyone. May you be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease. All the best. <laughs>